Welcome to episode 9 of MADE, a podcast about purpose-driven design, making, and manufacturing. Today we're going to discuss Houston's lack of zoning codes. Let's continue the conversation. Hi everyone, welcome back to MADE. With me always is Ray Peña. How are you doing? Claudia Bergen. Hello. And I am Jose Valcarzo. And our dog is here too. He just looked at me when I said my name. <laughs> uh, how's everybody doing today? Pretty good. And you guys? Doing good. You know, the move is closer to where we want to be. I think we got three rooms functional now. <laughs> yes. Well, four. Cause yeah, I'm not counting the kitchen. <laughs> yeah, so one more painting. week? No, 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 no. Well, I'm hoping to. <laughs> yeah, me too, because, you know, part of the reason we moved to a bigger space is because I want to work on more projects. But right now, the, the, the workshop room is the one that's holding the majority of the boxes. So there's no oh, projects yeah. getting done it's there. Fun. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I think we're fired long enough that I, I, I felt comfortable taking Friday off to go do something else that I'll talk about in, in what we're making or what we're doing. Um, so I think we're getting there. Today, we, we finally got the office pretty sent mm-hmm. so we're getting there the office slash studio uh well no so we have our bedroom we have the office that's going to be mostly for computer type work and then yeah so office slash studio and then we're gonna have the little workshop area where the 3d printer will live and stuff like that yeah so yeah um so yeah it's good in that sense um good yeah so let's get right to the news huh yes Everybody's ready all right so let's go to the news All right, so our first news story, it has to do with one of uh, famous architects, Le Corbusier's uh, building, and it's called The Radical Ideas Behind the Renovation of the Crumbly, Crumbling Le Corbusier Masterpiece. Um, what do you guys think about this article? I liked it. I, I really did like it. Yeah. Oh, I found I it interesting. Yeah. I, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I thought that there really weren't that radical ideas. <laughs> Definitely, think, we're not radical yet. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, as, as somebody that's worked in a lot of historic restoration, and maybe it's just the buildings that I worked on that we were renovating, um, we were doing a lot of these things. I mean, it stands to reason that if you're going to renovate a building, you're going to have to update some of the some of the design features that were made for the way people lived back in that day. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I'll give you an example. I worked a lot renovating old movie houses that are quite beautiful, you know, very intricate interiors. We would convert them to be able to function as Broadway theaters, basically, right? So old movie houses had, because they were movie houses, they've had a very shallow stage. So a big part of what we had to do is sort of tear down that little stage and build a full-blown stage tower, right? I guess these people would call that a radical renovation, but it's part of the function, you know? Anybody going to the theater, inside the theater, wouldn't realize this change. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Just like we would change maybe the slope of the seating and things like that. Now, in this article, they're sort of slightly bigger changes than that, you know, going from studios to be able to have sort of one-bedroom apartments, two-bedroom apartments. But, I mean, that's part of renovating a living building, a building for, for living. Yeah. So, and I didn't think it was that radical. 
renovation. Yeah, I would agree. I don't think it's that radical either. But and while I found it very interesting, um, and you know, we all studied this building in particular in mm-hmm. architecture school. Um, what I found interesting, or what I was, or better, but yet what was going through my mind reading the article, looking at the photographs, is what would Le Cabousier say about this? Mm-hmm. What would he say 80 years later if he was alive? And to me, I think he would say, uh, times are different now. Why are you making this exactly how I designed it 80 years ago? Mm-hmm. You should update it, change it, alter it. it it's, a, it's a thing that should reflect the time of today. The city has changed around it, that the building itself should too. Right. Uh, my personal feeling, because of his um, uh, modern leanings, is that that's what he would say, that's what he would think. So as a restoration, uh, it looks like they, they were trying to hold it as, as uh, close as they could to the original. But I don't think that the original master would have wanted to be held so close to the original. Hmm. Yeah, well, that's that is true. But we also have to think about the fact that he is Corbu as well. Yeah. <laughs> right, and he's not. You know, he's his ego, and not just his ego, but just the the fact that you know the the use of the building at the time in the nineteen twenties. You know, for for the building as a as a social housing um i found really interesting one of the quotes in the in in, in the article that said that um the corbusier at the time what he said about the building about the social aspects of designing this was it will teach them how to live in their houses mm-hmm. right because it's it's supposed to be a, a place for uh, sort of like, right now it's the salvation army is taking care of this and it's uh, for uh, transient people, people that are in, in, in transient mode, moving into from one place to another, maybe homeless for, at some point, and now they're moving to somewhere else as a refuge home. Um, I will say that people still, I've heard so many people say that today in 2016, the same mm-hmm. thing. It will teach them how to live in their houses. That there are people who don't know how to live in their own house mm-hmm. or how to live in a house or how to live in a place. And it's it's an interesting concept because I think he would he would actually say that and... This restoration is radical in the fact that it goes against that in a way. Um, it's still doing the same process mm. of it's still using having the same use, but for example, it included ADA standards mm. in it now. Uh, it included uh, putting more lighting, which he originally had in there, right? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. it's not because you know they need to be taught how to. How to have to live in more with more lighting is because it's a need. It's just it's just mm-hmm. a basic human need. Yeah, but you don't think that if Corbu was designing, I think it goes beyond. Like it's one thing if somebody else was renovating his building and he was alive today, he'd probably hate it. But if yeah. he was building, <laughs> if he was building this building today, I think he would include a lot of these things from the ADA standard point of view. I mean, this is all stuff we've learned after the fact, right? Yeah. Um, so I think a lot of this stuff might be included in this building, and I would like to think. Maybe he, well, no. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, you know, architects of that time had this sort of very, yeah, let's call it ego, but, you know, this way of speaking that they're making themselves so important to the, mm-hmm. the process or whatever. I would like to think he would maybe not be that way, but probably not. Probably would still be the same. Um, but, I mean, I think he would still do some of these changes, don't you? I, I, I think 
think I think you I think you would yes, uh, for the modernist in mm-hmm. him he would, but for the social aspect of mm-hmm. what is being what is needed now, you know the discussion would be longer. Yeah. It'd still be a question of well what 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 is it that you're trying to to do in in this type of in this la- in this particular use of a building mm-hmm. currently in twenty in twenty sixteen, I think you would still have the same mindset mm-hmm. as he did before, as many people still do. Yeah, probably. And changing their mind is very hard, and the mm-hmm. radical yeah. aspect of it is the fact that you manage to change their mind. Mm-hmm. So you think he still would want to impose his will on on the inhabitants of how they live? Um, Yes. So that one, that part wouldn't change. I don't know. I, it's funny because I would, I in my mind, I could, I could see a more softer, <laughs> a softer Gubuzier. You know how I used to take time to paint in the morning, and right. uh, I, I would think that the painter would be a little bit more um, free to explore the building, mm-hmm. but uh, maybe that's just me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't imagine he would have changed that much. No. I mean, but. I, I guess, and I see what your point is, Claudia, and I think it's very valid. I think when I hear the word radical renovation, I'm thinking like they took Ron Shump from a church and they're going to make it yeah. into like office building. Yeah. You know, like people <laughs> yeah, yeah, would yeah. people would riot. That's a radical <laughs> renovation. Yeah. There, this the use is, sim- is still basically the same. Mm-hmm. Well, like they the Reichstag uh, right. edition. That right. was radical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, interesting article. I, I think a little overstated at the beginning. That's all. Yeah. 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 Uh, another, uh, another one of those um, uh, titles that don't really convey the, the nature of the article. Hmm? Clickbait yeah. is what we would. Yeah, Actually, that's not really clickbait. It's when they, <laughs> they say something that the article is nothing and it's not, not about it at all. But yeah. yeah like the uh, 10 radical things about the Kabuzi is nothing. <laughs> that would be a little yeah. bit more like it. That's how I need to start titling the <laughs> the podcast and get more <laughs> listeners. Yes. Yeah. Why we hate like Corbusier? <laughs> Even that's not really. Oh what. man. Let's do it. Let's do it. That's funny. Right. <laughs> Let's go to the next story. How self-driving cars might improve our cities and towns. Tell us a little bit about this one, Claudia. Um, this okay. I can't wait to hear. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well. I, it's labeled as uh, design and urban design. So, you mm-hmm. know, like, as an article from the Tree Hugger. I, I love the fact that it's coming from Tree Hugger, too. Tree-hugger. Oh, it's such a great thing because it's like urban designer 101. Like, this mm-hmm. is... And that, that's just very typical PB. <laughs> PB is Parsons uh, Brinkerhoff. They're the, the company who... Um, the architecture firm who worked on this visioning plan of what it would be like to... Uh, have the self-driving cars and how towns will be so much better because of them and um, specifically about driverless and autonomous vehicles so they're called autonomous autonomous vehicles avs mm-hmm. and um and how they will be transformational uh, so i i ride a scooter right, right? and i've been no, driving drive, yeah. driving it for 10 years mm-hmm. and i can imagine what my commute would be like if i if i'm drive if i'm sharing the road not only with regular cars but also with driverless cars and also with bicyclists and pedestrians mm-hmm. and, you know, buses and bus rapid transit and streetcars and everything mm-hmm. else in there. It's just, it's so, it, you really need really good planning mm-hmm. and only an urban designer uh, will in, 
we'll create you know the imagery that's that's in this in this article basically like let's let's photoshop the best situation that we can find (laughs) and let's photoshop yes the optimistic Mm -hmm. view and how wonderful and transformational it will be and let's put the best trees and let's find the most happy drivers Mm -hmm. all around and all the cars are um the driverless cars are white Mm -hmm. (laughs) they're ghosts in the in the images There's solar panels along this um, major highway, which yeah, is really that. interesting too. Like mm-hmm. so many solar panels, and um, but the biggest thing is also like they put diversity, but they don't put you know, like older people. Like they put families, you know, riding around in bicycles with their mm-hmm. kids. You know, I I can think of our our new neighbors. You know, like we have mothers that are you know in like their. 50s and they're you know going to work really early in the morning at seven o'clock taking their kids to school and they have three kids they're mm-hmm. not gonna be on a bike right. and, you know that's their last worry they barely have money sometimes mm-hmm. to you know to to deal with things and it's just such a such an envisioning task like of, of this promising better world Right, it's a very utopian <laughs> yes. look of it if you will yes right. and that's very urban designer mm-hmm architecture firm uh, urban design studio from a large architecture firm type of work that mm. and it, it kind of saddens me because it, it they're you know it's they're still doing this they still have this imagery and this they're still doing this type of work well it, it saddens you but it also fires you up a little bit <laughs> yeah yeah so what do you really feel about <laughs> that's that? how i feel like <laughs> well, you know it's funny uh when i was reading this article and uh, especially now listening to uh, your thoughts about it I think of that song, that R.E.M. song, Shining Happy People. Right. That's, that's what this reminds me of, just the imagery and yeah. you talk. That's what this is. And you obviously, real world, the real world is different places. Right. Um, I think it's an interesting academic exercise because that's what all it really is. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it, obviously, if they're trying to sell an idea, they're always going to look at the optimistic view. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but yeah, you're right. Uh, if you're looking at just the images, the images do convey uh, one story, and and the story it conveyed conveys to me is this utopian paradise in summer. Um, yes. Winter is going to be a different nightmare. Obviously. <laughs> well, there's going to be no winter in the future, right? Yeah. <laughs> no winter. Okay. Yeah. Good. Climate change is going to fix that for us. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. Um, they counting for that. Uh, interesting concept, um, but it's funny because they're talking about repurposing highways and mm-hmm. and you know the highways could be these are all could be you know you could right. do this and you could do that and, uh, repurposing the highway to give you you know bicycle pathways and more greenway, but um, it's funny it's to repurpose something like that it actually is more expensive than to just leave it alone. Yes. So. Mm-hmm. A lot of the money that they're going to be proposing to spend, and, and it doesn't, maybe I missed it, but you guys didn't see if this was for a particular city plan that they were planning this. This was just a. I didn't, yeah, I didn't think so. I didn't, I didn't yeah, I didn't see that either. It's just a generic yeah. what if. You know. Right. Yeah, and, and, uh, I mean, in one of these images, <laughs> talking about what you just brought up, the cost of how much it would cost to repurpose this. I mean, they, they ran a stream through the middle of where this highway used to be. Yes. Like, yes. Well, how are you doing that? <laughs> Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I kind of agree with you both. It's such a utopian view of it. They don't talk about how far in the future this is, but they just don't address. It. I, I didn't. Miss, maybe you guys. Maybe I missed it. I don't, 
Why, why do they say there's going to be less cars? Oh, uh, they say that because when you have these self-driving cars, they're going to force you to give up your car. That's basically what that, they didn't. Oh, so this didn't, is, this ahead. is like a government self-driving car. Like I don't own this car. This is a self-driving car that's there and I can get in it and it'll drive me. That was my feel of reading. Oh, no, forget that. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's, it's a big, yeah. it's a big push. I mean, we're seeing a lot of these, this kind of technology being developed right now. And maybe this was just a futurist's, you know, leap. They're just taking a big futurist leap without really enough of a concept of what the uh, the current situation is and what it's going to be in 10 years. Because um, that's all it really is. is it's, it's a shot in the dark. Yeah. So, like, the reality of it is, it's, is, again, it goes with smart growth and where smart growth and regulations go through, since this is our zoning type mm. of... Um, uh, episode. Maybe we talk about zoning. Maybe we're going to be talking about zoning. But the idea here of AVs comes a lot in zip cars or the, you know, like Uber, you know, the whole, all of these type of transportation, new transit options that are available now. Mm-hmm. So Jose and I, for instance, have the car to go that we'll just grab a car and, mm-hmm. you know, we'll borrow it really quick and we'll move from one, one place to the other. While these are all great, um, they're saying that. If you were to change those cars or that that new those new transit modes mm-hmm. to drive less uh, driverless uh, cars and uh, even electric cars too, mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. this would be more doable within the next ten years because that is the smart growth uh, mantra of where we're moving towards. Okay. And I get that, and I'm all about you know an electric car. I'm all about you know the environment, but. In 10 years, they're not going to get me to give oh, up course not. my car <laughs> that I want to drive. I have a goal yeah. for a car I want to own and I want to drive. I'm not going to get into it here. But, <laughs> you know, in 10 years, they're not going to get me to give up that car that I want to have so that I can have some <laughs> homogenous white <laughs> self-driving vehicle yes. that yeah. I don't own. That's not just going to that's not gonna happen. And I can imagine, like, I could imagine this happening. A hundred years on the road when I'm dead and the people that are growing up with that are, I'm raising are also going to want their cars are also dead. Like, this is a long way. You have to change people's way of thinking for a long time here. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah. It's a yeah. huge, it's a huge thing. But in the, in the urban designer of a world, mm-hmm. this, this is fairly close. They're thinking 50 years. Trust me, guys. They're, they're thinking like because of smart growth movement, you mm-hmm. know, like going anti- uh, or you know sprawl issues and all of the new the new systems that are available transit systems that they want to fit in place this could happen within the next 50 years is what they would want but obviously we're saying yeah. that it won't because I, so I just, yeah. the good news is what you're telling me is don't worry about it i can still drive my bike anywhere i want <laughs> <laughs> the big yeah. the, the better news is the fact that you know the people who have one child and they decide to own a van? <laughs> oh my gosh, that does <laughs> to move too. around a yeah, small yeah. city, <laughs> yeah. they can still do that, and they probably will continue doing that. But you know they're okay to do that. <laughs> yeah. All right, well maybe that can be a longer uh, discussion <laughs> down the road about <laughs> about yeah. uh, the the self driving car. We could have a but, main. But topic you know what? One thing I do want to touch on is uh, I went on a on a four hour motorcycle ride yesterday. Mm-hmm. It was a perfect day for that. Yeah. And one thing that you that you really become aware of, especially if it's a nice day and you're cruising at seventy miles an hour, 
and there's some people next to you. I always get a little worried that people don't see me, so I don't like mm. them to be next to me if I can help it. Um, is how much pavement there is. There is mm-hmm. a tremendous amount yeah. of roads, and I'm I'm wondering if you know someone else had realized. You know what? We've got an an, an amazing amount of the surface of the earth that is impermeable, mm-hmm. you know, impermeable surface, uh, and and it is a tremendous amount. It, it it becomes much more obvious to me in the motorcycle than on the car in the car. In the car, you're mm-hmm. insulated. Maybe you don't notice it so much. But when I look at it, it's like, well, if somebody bumps into me and I'm going to fall into this road, that is like a, a cheese grater. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I, I look at it. And it is a tremendous amount of land that we have uh, sacrificed for the purposes of being able to get from point A to point B. So, uh, you know, ha- after everything we said about the cards, and myself included, uh, I do have to acknowledge that there is an awful lot of pavement, a tremendous mm-hmm. amount of pavement. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 I don't think like getting me to yeah. go. But getting me to give up my car, that's a different story. Yeah, well, not just your car. You're going to have to give up your motorcycle, too, because, yeah. Tyra, you're going to ride your motorcycle when every, all the other cars around you are are it's automated. Yeah. yeah. I'm just glad we got to hear Ray sing. Yeah. Oh, me sing? Yeah. 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 So, you know what? That's what this reminds me of. I can't help it. That's what it's it is. awesome. Great. <laughs> all right. Well, let's go to the last story before we get to our main topic. And uh, this is called Robotic Fabrication in Architecture. Ray, why don't you tell us a little bit about this one? Well, um, this was one of those things that, uh, that popped up. Uh, I thought it was, it was interesting. Um, it caught my attention, and, you know, I'm part of some uh, forum for robotics, which mm-hmm. is where this came up in, and I'm uh, manufacturing. And um, the, uh, the London uh, School, uh, I'm sorry, the London Architectural Association, which is a school uh, for architecture, uh, has developed an interesting program, and I won't say technology because they didn't develop the technology, but they kind of married uh, a lot of these technologies together mm-hmm. where they can take a tree, a raw tree from the forest, uh, photograph it, map it, grid it, and determine the best possible way to use it mm-hmm. in a, as a structural member. And the reason that is so fascinating is because it cuts out a tremendous amount of industrial processes that uh, every piece of wood has to undergo. Today, Mm -hmm. if you're going to make something, uh, you know, a tree is is felled in the forest, that tree is taken to a sawmill, they cut it, they they take a round tree and they turn it into rectangular boards. Um, And then those rectangular boards, if you're making some glue lambs or something like that, they have to be glued back together into the desired shape. So what's interesting is that they can map out every individual piece of wood and machine the connections to every other piece of wood to create a strong structure with a minimal amount of processing. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so I I found that very interesting. They're they're tying together uh, 3D mapping, 3D imaging, uh, and of course CNC machining and uh, being able to do this in an organic form and doing it accurately so all these parts fit together. Very fascinating. Right. No, I think it's very cool um, the way they did it. Um, it's it's interesting. It's a very specific look. Oh yeah, it. yeah. Um, it, it it was, and I thought it was a very cool look to it. And the process that they show of how they scan it and how they the robots moving their robot arms moving around the tree, I thought it was very cool. Um, I think the title was a little. It's also a little bit misleading because it makes it seem like. Um, 
like there hasn't been robotic manufacturing and architecture at all ever but I, I can imagine some parts are made some parts in architecture are made robotically um so when as, I first yeah, read, I was like huh as a matter of fact in a sawmill uh very yeah. at the very end is when human hands touch the wood mm-hmm. um you know the uh the entire operation uh, except for a few few people to observe here and there is all you know basically uh mechanically driven Right, and that's why I think the the title almost doesn't let you realize just what they're doing here, and just that they're leaving so much of the tree, one intact. in its original shape and intact. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, that, that's the coolest part to me about it, and how they are able to process the connections between them so well. It, it's it's a very cool look, a very cool process altogether. Um, so yeah, I think it, I, I like it. Well, I, I think the the article again because we've been talking a lot about the the titles of the article. Um, it's definitely trying to feature the the new program that they have, right? Mm-hmm. And combining design and make mm-hmm. as part of a um, a design cu- curriculum, an architecture curriculum. You know mm-hmm. how I, I thought that was really interesting, and yeah. and then showing this as an example of how you 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 create that type of program and now students can go from you know what we went through like an architecture school just basic design buildings and stuff but then going to 3d uh, mapping and then of materials Mm -hmm. to this degree it's like the next level of technology of what students are learning now yeah and how they're applying it it's it's just it's great yeah, and it should be said that this is not theoretical. This is an actual project that they built mm-hmm. using this technology. Yeah. Exactly. It, yeah, it's not a studio, you know, theoretical, like, academic mm-hmm. exercise. This was a real thing. So be interesting to see where this is in five to ten years. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's very cool. And I think it, it, it lends itself to, um, you know, materials can help influence the design. I think this definitely lends itself to that as well. And I like I like that of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, one of the things I like best about it is that, uh, you know, in a typical sawmill, the blade consumes the wood in order to separate the boards. Mm-hmm. And it's not unusual to get somewhere between 15, 20% waste. So uh, from the from the blade, if you include the, the cheek cuts, which is the outside where it's curved, uh, you know, 30%, 35% of the original log is gone. You don't, you don't mm-hmm. get that in wood. So this utilizes, uh, if you... If you take away the material that's that's consumed for the connection, it uses uses ninety five percent of the original log. It's quite fascinating. Yeah, and very efficient. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and that goes even to our product of the week, right? Of you know, like closed closed system recycling, mm-hmm. the only being able to use everything that you're on reuse mm-hmm. the material. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is that's really cool. We're gonna yeah, we're gonna cover that in this in a bit, and it's, mm-hmm. I think it's gonna really it ties into this. Yeah, yeah, cool. Excellent. Great, great. Cool. So let's. Uh, that's it for news. Let's move on to our main topic, and we're going to be talking some. We're going to make zoning interesting. Yeah, let's hope. Is that even possible? Yeah, yeah we're going to try. That's going right. to be the title of the of the of the podcast. So I hope so. <laughs> now you're talking utopia. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Let's go to the main topic. All right, well, let's get into our main topic. Um, and uh, this week, we're going to be talking about zoning. Uh, 
and in the larger context as well as in sort of a very specific one, right? Because one of the things that I've heard a lot about, and actually I heard about it like a couple of years ago, I had no idea about this, is the, the fact that there's no zoning laws in Houston. I had never heard about this. Have you guys heard about this before? I've never heard about this. Hmm. Me neither. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because, you know, for people that may not know this whole theory of a study architecture, and we've all worked in architecture, same thing, is the zoning laws are what keeps um, similar buildings grouped together, right? That That's sort of its main... The main case that that keeps a residential activities right a residential zone or residential area from having say a brothel in it or a you know an office tower all of a sudden it keeps churches in residential areas for the most part and it doesn't have like a strip joint next to a church like those zoning zoning laws sort of create those sort of it's select an area of the city as this is what we're going to build here it's right. prescriptive, yes. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So you don't have a bar across from a school. Exactly. And that's oversimplifying it because there's also other things that zoning laws prohibit as well as height, you know, how close your building can be to the street. There's so many things that zoning laws uh, prescribe. Mm-hmm. Um, to think of a city that has none of this is just out there for me. Yeah, it makes you think of... Uh, of- you know, back in the old days, several hundred years ago, where things were organic, wherever you wanted to put something, you had no problem. You put it wherever you want. Uh, and, of course, those days uh, those days are over. Right. And to think that there is a Wild West kind of situation going on in Houston would be uh, kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and especially when you think about you know, but the main article that I put on here, and I've read a couple of the articles that I'll, I'll add to the list, um, when it says that Houston is now the fourth largest city in the United States, only it's behind New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago, and it's about to pass Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I also think of zoning very um, as a vital part of residential growth, mm-hmm. um, and also just a, as a function of segregation. Mm-hmm. So basically, not a function of, but um, to to deal with issues like historical societal issues that that we've had here in the Mm -hmm. united states for a very long time Mm -hmm. um in terms of how how we as a society as a communities have segregated themselves Mm -hmm. um so zoning is not just you know like the larger scope of commercial churches and everything else Mm -hmm. also within residential areas you have different types of residence residences and Mm -hmm. that includes um class and income right exactly um well and it's interesting because i i i've had a very specific um experience with zoning laws that's an architect and working in architecture to this day you know the zoning laws to me are the thing that i have to abide by and i have to follow i have to sort of always go back to to make sure I'm allowed to build a building that I'm trying to build or the client wants built, right? So I don't have this experience of I need to change the zoning laws. When I change the zoning laws because I'm trying to just do a one-time sort of, it's what's called a variance, a one-time exception for this as an example. Right now I have a residence that they want to build into the setback that's required in the zoning. And it's like a very small thing. It's a hardship. That's why we're going to do it. So we're filing a variance. I was just filing it in Arlington. And you know, it's a one-time change, a one-time exception. But I've not had to deal with, I know you have dealt with a lot of sort of, uh, what is the zoning laws going to be? 
how are we redoing this zoning laws? That sort of thing. Yeah, from urban planners and spe- specifically urban designers because we tend to develop community communities. Mm-hmm. So you end up doing a planned unit development that's not only for one specific building, but it's multiple buildings or multiple uses. So you do end up having to re- reestablish the zoning almost for an area. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, definitely. Yeah, mm-hmm. like urban planners deal with this a lot. How about you, Ray? What's been your experience with zoning in sort of the larger context? Well, it's funny because I'm I'm dealing with it right now. We're mm-hmm. putting up a new building uh, to our shop, about a five thousand square foot building, and uh, we you've been to our shop. It's in, yeah. it's located in a very small town that is that for some reason this town is incorporated. And when I say it's a small town, it's an, it's a population of eighty five uh, residents, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, so the fact that it's an incorporated town means that in the state of Delaware, they have the right to declare their own zoning laws. Right. So uh, we had one issue where the, the building lot is so small and we own the adjoining properties on that building lot that they allowed us a, a zero uh, setback. We could build right to the lot line, mm-hmm. which is contrary to the zoning requirements of the county. Mm-hmm. So the way uh, that we got around it, we had the city, because the city has the right to create their own zoning laws, but they didn't have any. Hmm. And and this project is creating the zoning laws. Our, <laughs> our little project is actually creating the zoning laws because they have uh, written and filed a letter that states that they are adopting the zoning requirements of the county hmm. for the one exception is that the one-time exception that they're allowing us a zero setback. Right. And it's interesting because it's such a small town. And yes. they recognize that this business is so important to their town that they're making an exception for it and they're trying, they're yes. changing things just for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's that's a great example of of how it usually works, mm-hmm. even from a, a small scale and how it's applied at the larger scale. Right, because you see that, that here in D.C. Yeah, you see yeah. that in D.C. You see that everywhere else because you, you'll have, a, a you know, Google go mm-hmm. into a, an area and Silicon Valley, for example, completely changed. Mm-hmm. Um the use the uses of that whole area um, because of big companies going in right. and that made big that had a big impact later on like I, I call them unintended consequences on the rest of the, of the city Oakland right now is having some serious issues with gentrification it's having some serious issues with um, um, lack of housing because of those like you know issues that you know the, what 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 happened in Silicon Valley? Well, in San Francisco too. The big push in San Francisco is pushing people into Oakland, exactly. and it's causing those issues they have there. Exactly. Mm. Interesting. Well, I mean, let's talk a little bit about Houston yeah. because the interesting part is, you know, this article that we that that's the main article that we've read to sort of have this discussion, sort of paints this the idea that they have no zoning laws into why Houston has grown grown the way it has. You know, he describes the idea they don't have one downtown they sort of have a bunch of them right they have a theater district they have the business district they have so it's all sort of broken up you have residential areas that sort of grow larger in certain in downtowns for this what was it 600 mile city um do you do you guys agree that this no zoning is what's made this happen um, no, I don't agree with that. What it is? I think that they just happen to be at the right place in the right time. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> well, like you know, like a lot of things that happen, I think that maybe 
to say that they have no zoning, and I think you discovered this in your uh, in your research, is a misnomer mm-hmm. uh, because obviously they uh, they have a building code they're abiding by, and they still have residential neighborhoods, and uh, you know they they still have all of the things commercial district. They still have all the things that you have uh, that zoning usually helps to uh, control. Uh, they just don't seem to be using the same nomenclature. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think with the oil industry, and I think it mentions that in the in the article, was the biggest uh, the biggest uh, boom for the city uh, because it, whenever there's a hiccup in the oil industry, it affects a lot of other sectors of the city. So I think the the big uh, impetus for growth uh, has been a singular industry and everything else that falls in around it. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Claudia? Do you think that the zone the no zoning is what's creating this large city, or do you think? You agree with Ray? What, what do you think? I agree with Ray, but I also think that there are other factors as well. Like, um, basically, just sprawl mm-hmm. and the the culture of 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 Texas in a way of being able to drive right and doing big things. Mm-hmm. Texas is known for having big, and that's what the, the article talks about: Texas-sized amenities. Mm-hmm. You know, that, you know, you don't have just one small little shopping center. You have a huge shopping center. Mm-hmm. You have the huge places. So, and they're far, far apart. So, therefore, you have to use, rely on your, your car so much. Mm-hmm. So, it has created, I guess, those all of those different uh, metropolitan areas or, the, you know, big downtowns within. Different centers or yeah. like decentralized downtown almost. Yeah. So, I think urban mm-hmm. sprawl as a whole and the the fed through the a lot of the how people are used to living mm-hmm. in towns like that i guess that that's that's one of the reasons why as well what i found interesting also is that uh i really liked how the, the article started because they're looking at houston from us from a high rise mm-hmm. um and most non-planners mm-hmm. <laughs> most developers or people who look at um urban planning from a different lens than to than to have that view of sort of like a conqueror view <laughs> you know like when you're up up high in a right. in a place and then like you start seeing the city in a different way hmm. interesting yeah, I mean, and i agree with both of you i don't know i think like you guys both mentioned is the oil industry sort of what contributed to this as much as any any kind of no i mean it's, if you think about it it's sort of the confluence of everything they have the oil industry they don't have state tax they don't have city taxes so all of this has sort of made this happen. Um, and in some of the other articles I read, you know, I, I read one from a a professor of zoning in Houston that talks about, because he, he talks about how fed up he is with people telling him at conferences that he goes to that, oh, you have the easiest job ever because you don't have any zoning laws. He's like, like, we don't have zoning laws, but we have ordinances that restrict a lot of the things that that zoning laws do restrict and he you know he lists a bunch of things from tax increment uh, reinvestment zones how the airports have zoning around them to keep from having high rises in the path of the airplanes is coming you know they have historic preservation laws so it's interesting that that this town and he also talks about how um, they've voted about implementing zoning and it's been turned down but by very small margins it's interesting how this reputation has come about in, I guess, the planning circles for this city. Um, yeah, I, I, I guess I almost 
wonder how what it would really be if there was no zoning like would you really have a free-for-all hmm. hmm, yeah but you know what's interesting I, I like the idea that that at least uh on the surface it might appear to be a wild west situation mm -hmm. but obviously it, it isn't i think they they uh worded this article for to uh, for the purpose of being sensational mm -hmm. uh you know no zoning laws will get your attention real quick uh the fact that these little urban centers have sprawled up, you know, he's mentioned several downtowns and they're all visible from each other. Uh, it seems to me that they've allowed the growth to happen in the most organic way they could by having these centers where they are most needed or most useful. So, um, you know, even though that, that the claim is that there's no zoning, something is controlling how these things happen. And by having them as ordinances, it's a little bit easier to bend the rules uh, when it's necessary uh, than to be so hard-lined on uh, the way a zoning law would be. So you, you think that the, the, I don't want to call it a lie, but the fantasy of their no zoning laws is what contributes to this a little bit. This idea that we don't have any zoning laws makes gives a certain mindset to people. Of course, and that with the, with the tax, the relaxed taxes and all that mm -hmm. is very attractive to businesses who uh, otherwise are, are pressured into complying with things they don't want to comply with. Mm -hmm. So I think it gives that that sense that, um, on the surface at least, that idea that it's a little bit of a Wild West town. <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously it's it's huge, you know, big uh, skyscrapers and, you know, it's, metro it's very metropolitan. It's not a Wild West town. But I think in the mindset, like you said, uh, helps to contribute um, to that kind of growth. People feel free. They don't feel like they're going to be controlled. And and because of that, the growth came, comes along with it. Hmm. That's interesting. But then how do you guys attribute the... Because one of the big things that's mentioned in this article is the low cost of residences in this way. I think it's at uh, $144,000. With the media. The media, the media yeah. right? The media. Which is pretty low when you compare it's the fourth largest city in the country, right? Mm -hmm. The houses in LA, New York, and Chicago cost much more than that, right? yeah. even in D.C. Yeah. The median cost of a house is much larger than that. So how does that happen for a, for such a large city? Is that the no zoning? <laughs> but like, are you afraid to pay too much for a house when, uh, like, you know, a, a bar could open up next door to you? Is that part of it? Is that not part of it? I don't know. I think it's the amount of space. I mean, uh, Texas is big and flat. Right. And when you're out there, all you can see is land and, People think that there's there's plenty more to plenty more to come around, so maybe they don't feel like uh, they have to. Oh, I gotta have this house. Mm -hmm. If it's if it if I don't like it and I don't like the price, I'll go somewhere else. So the buyer controls the market. I think that is what helps control the median house uh, prices, because that, that's a that's a separate issue. I think I don't think that mm -hmm. is so tied to zoning as the the uh, the buyer's market where they can control it individually yeah but what's interesting also is from a from a market perspective is always a, you know you will all relate to this location 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 right mm, yeah because yeah. that dictates the cost of the price of your house right right so even yeah. while they have low taxes the fact that the location doesn't really matter 
Mm-hmm. But, but the majority of doesn't matter. No, if there's yeah, multiple downtowns, then I would think it'd be even more incentive to drive up the price. No, it's not just one area. I that's think because up there's multiple downtowns, there's mm-hmm. no one main downtown where everyone wants to live in. Mm-hmm. So you don't have infill development, and that's what the article mentions. So if there was this one hot spot, mm-hmm. um, like the sea, you know, like people forget that there's you know outer areas beyond the beltway mm-hmm. right and the cost of housing is just as expensive sometimes out there as well right. um but because location 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 right it, it matters where you live how close you are to jobs how close you are to things but if jobs are close to you because there's three downtowns you know sprawled throughout mm-hmm. and they're all connected by inner ring roads mm-hmm. by roads so or highways, right? Major highways. Then connectivity is really not that hmm. big. Of, you know, it's you're you're connected still. So the cost of your and I guess if you're used to of your house doesn't really matter and as if much. You're, and if you're used to driving long distances already in Texas as you are, it's not as a big deal. If I have to, I live in the theater district and I have to drive over to the hospital district or whatever. They yeah, do. yeah, it's not as big exactly. deal. And you can yeah. move too from one place to another easier if you're hmm. young, right? If you're young, hmm. like. You know, if, if you're young and you want to live in one area and your your job is somewhere else, you can move closer to that place. And then you change jobs, you go to another place and you mm-hmm. can move to that other place. So in a way, I mean, I, I'm, you know, it, it's showing how urban sprawl, but suburban sprawl is not as bad mm-hmm. economically as as much as urban planners have, have been uh, conditioned to believe that sprawl is horrible right now and mm-hmm. you know i'll say that the same thing it's just a horrible thing to do it's just not a good thing to do to live not a good way to live but houston is showing that right Houston's showing that it's not it's not it's bad. Not bad yeah and you bring up an interesting an interesting point claudia that um the population of the of this area could be what's really driving uh, what the one the prices of housing but uh how the government is dealing with these uh, zoning issues and or lack thereof mm-hmm. uh as according to the article uh it does mention that one-fifth of the population are non-us uh, natives so there might be a, a a factor with the fact that it might be more of a transient city people come in for a few years they do some business and they move on and somebody else moves in in their place and maybe that evolution of the population is what's helping drive this diversity in in the uh, in what we see as the uh, building areas, the, 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 the multiple downtowns, all these little centers, and um, driving the growth. You know, when you move somewhere else and you've got some money and you want to invest, guess what you do? You by by that nature, you start investing and you start growing it. Mm-hmm. And and of course, when if you couple that with that mindset that oh, you know, well, Houston has a very relaxed zoning law. Or, or ordinances, uh, it helps to fuel more and more growth. So uh, maybe maybe it's really marketing. Maybe they have intentionally marketed themselves as a Wild West town, and uh, and that's what has kind of caused this to happen. Yeah, and this goes back to last week. Remember when we were talking about the top 50 city or the, the 50 cities of The yes. Guardian, and I mentioned mm-hmm. how... You know, like Curitiba, for example, was known for marketing itself as this is the most sustainable city right. of in the world. Because the reason why they, they have that label is because of how well they marketed themselves. Marketing plays a big role in in development and in cities hmm. as a whole. 
it's really well, interesting. interesting. Okay, so looking at it from this point of view and, and what we've discussed, do we think this could work somewhere else? Somewhere where they don't have this sort of economic industry that helps it so much and have this lack of taxes? Could this work in New York City? Could this work in Chicago? Could this work here in D.C.? No longer. I don't think it's, it you think it's no too longer. late. We've gone it's down that late. road. Yeah, somewhere. major cities like that have gone, especially because smart growth has immersed itself so much. I mean, the, the article talks about, you know, uh, top-down management, a.k.a. smart growth, mm. right? So that's truly what it is. I, I'm, I'm really not a proponent of smart growth as a whole. Right. Um, and as an urban planner, that's like a big thing. Like, how could you not be have drunk the smart growth Kool-Aid? <laughs> but I really have, I really have not, because there are many other issues, and so I, I do think that for secondary, tertiary cities, this proves that you, know, you can have uh, lax regulation, mm-hmm. and it could still foster some vibrancy. It doesn't have to mean that smart growth yields um, economic growth. Interesting. Interesting. I will, I will let you in on a little inside information. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just hired probably two to three months ago, I hired a, uh, another machinist who uh, came looking for a job from, guess where, Houston, Texas. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason he was looking for a job this far away from, from Houston, Texas is because the, um, the oil industry has suffered tremendously in the last year. And as a result, which they don't cover in this article, and this article was actually written quite recently. I couldn't find, uh, okay, there it is, May 13th, he wrote this article. Mm -hmm. So even though he mentions the oil industry, he doesn't really know what's happening in the oil industry. And uh, right now, people that are are in that industry are closing up their doors, they're losing their jobs, uh, and all other industries related to oil are suffering, including machinists, and uh, machine shops. So that's why I'm seeing an influx in, in um, resumes. And in fact, I hired one gentleman. And he said he was unemployed for the last six months. He's been mm-hmm. looking for a job for the last six months. So I think what we're going to see is that this this model that they've created is going to have a uh, an aspect of shrinking that we're going to see probably in the next year or so. Uh, and I'm not sure how many other people are uh, fully aware of it. Uh, but a lot of the the industry that has erupted around the oil industry, once that major seed of oil is experiencing an issue, it kind of trickles around and it affects all the other industries around it. And uh, they won't have much of a choice but to pull up and go elsewhere or some other industry comes in and takes its place. Right, because I mean, in the article, they mentioned that it's attracted a lot of 500 fortune companies because yeah. of this sort of boom that they have. So there's some other industries happening there, but it seems to still be driven by the oil industry. Um, yes. Interesting. So, I mean, yeah, it's, it's an interesting topic. And I don't know, I mean, there's something to keep in mind as, as I move through life working in, yeah. in residential nope. architecture right now. Because I think sometimes I do feel like it would be nice to not have zoning codes. Um, uh, I've run so much. <laughs> yeah, you laugh, but I ran into so many issues. Uh, one of my one of the guys I work with, he's having serious problems trying to get a small variance change. And once you start getting a variance change, it sort of opens up um, them to review everything. At that point, they start reviewing the appearance of the building, something they normally don't. 
you know. Yeah. And him and I are having this discussion that like, well, that's really none of their business <laughs> what material or what the building looks like because they're they're supposed to care about the shape of the building. That's what that's what zoning checks. Don't ask me what it's going to look like. And we're having to do these renderings for this building that they we shouldn't be having to do. Um, and the client has to pay for it. All right, the client has to pay for it. And and when and to me, it's a slippery slope because the minute you start regulating aesthetics, it, it's a problem. So, it is, absolutely. But that's a, that's a different topic, I think, altogether. Yeah. Now, let me ask you, before we close out on this, mm-hmm. what do you feel about the title of this, of this article? Do you think it was... Um, specifically to to get viewers to click on this article and read it, or do you think they, he really honestly believed that there was no zoning laws? I think he actually believes, because in some of the other articles that I read, that there seems to be sort of this, um, I don't want to say this disagreement, but there's this, maybe it's a myth, maybe, maybe it's not, but people sort of do disagree with their zoning laws. Because I found two that disagree with each other. One of the articles I found was, uh, forget what you've heard, Houston really does have zoning, in parenthesis, sort of, you know. So <laughs> that article is just as sort of clickbait, I think what people call it, as much as any other one. And then the third article here is called, the city with, in parenthesis, almost no limits. Yeah. You know, so I think this topic generates this almost sensationalized headlines to begin yeah. with. What do you but think? in either case, I think I think uh, some of the points that he brought up was interesting. Yeah. Um, although I don't think that, that, that title was was truthful. Yeah, I mean, I think the more digging you do into it, you start to sort of see that's not really true. Um, yeah. And maybe you know, from this point of view, that he focused so much on sort of the growth of of Houston that he probably didn't do as much searching into do we really not have zoning laws. You know? Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, I I think it's also um, because it's it's from the Federalist, uh, which is an online magazine um, that is within the libertarian circles, mm-hmm. which definitely gives you non-regulation, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, people who don't like regulation, which you know, at times it's good. I, as a planner, I cannot. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard for me to not. Have some reg- to embrace some regulations, right. but yeah, definitely. I think that that this this particular title was specifically for sort of like to make the point of like yes, you know, look how well it works when you don't have regulation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You, I think you're right. It, you know, for me sometimes it's hard to like consider the source as much, but you got to consider the source when it comes to some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and mm-hmm. you know what? It's interesting because uh, on a separate little side story. Sometimes people will alter zoning codes thinking that it is for their own best interest. Uh, and I like to use the example in, um, in Irvindale, I think it's Irvindale, California. They put a, uh, a sriracha plant for making sriracha mm-hmm. sauce. Yeah. And everybody loved the idea. Oh, that's great. You're going to bring thousands of jobs. It's wonderful. Let's put this plant here. Let's, let's go ahead and change the, <laughs> the zoning. And it'll be wonderful, and we all live around here, and we can walk there, and mm-hmm. ride my bicycle. It'll be the best thing in the world. So they built a plant, mm-hmm. and nobody really understood what a sriracha plant was. And they had to live with the mm-hmm. smell of the Oops. sriracha processing the peppers and the vinegar and everything. Wow. And um, they, they regret, <laughs> they regret <laughs> fighting and lobbying so hard for a zoning change. Right. Uh, but it was too late. It's been done. 
<laughs> well, and that's, see, that's the interesting point to me is that, you know, I did quick search. I didn't go extensively into it. But if what one of the articles says is true that, you know, the margin by where people that want zoning and people that don't want zoning is small, that the, 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 the votes are close and not a landslide vote. In Houston. In Houston, right. I wonder what the people that are for the more stringent zoning laws or the more traditional zoning laws would say. Maybe they have stories like that (laughs) that they could point to. You know, this article was sort of saying, look at how great it is. I wonder if if there's an article out there saying, look at this shit that they've done here. Yeah. You know? Exactly. It's interesting. And, yeah, one last thing is this town that I live in is a very little, you know, small town. Mm-hmm. And um, you you guys know that I work on these uh, valves that are used for shucking clams, the mm-hmm. big valves. Mm-hmm. That plant is, we could walk there from where I live. Mm-hmm. And on the days that they are steaming clams, guess what you're smelling in the air all day long? Clams, clams, clams. But it was one of those things, it was an old business, it's been there 100 years. You know, right. Zoning didn't really affect that, but uh, when the wind switches... We uh, we get the effects, and today, if they wanted to build it today, it, there would be a, a much bigger fight. But it kind of got ga- grandfathered in. Right. Yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, we now live close to a transfer station, the at the spo- a waste disposal transfer station. Oh, isn't that nice? Isn't that nice? Yes. Wait but, till um, it gets hot. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and humid. Yeah. So we'll see how, oh, this is like, that's, well, I mean, that's our we, experience, right? right? We live much closer to the metro line and we've heard it at night a couple yeah. of times. It's yeah. not that bad and that that loud. But yeah. yeah. But I mean, that's part of it. Sometimes you're living here in an airport, you hear yeah, the, yeah, you hear the, the you hear the planes, you know? Yep. So, cool. all right, well, cool. So that, that was, that's a good conversation. I think we'll, uh. Keep an eye out. Let's keep an eye out for any articles talking about how bad it is, and maybe we can update this at some point. Yeah, because I think we're gonna see something, and I, they might not even mention it, but I think we're gonna see something, especially uh, from uh, my experience with people specifically from Houston looking mm-hmm. for work because it's mm-hmm. dried up, at least in this one industry. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. All right. Cool. All right. So let's uh, let's wrap that up and move then to the product of the week. All right, well, let's uh, talk about the product of the week. And this week, uh, Ray, you found this. It's called the Philobot. Tell us a little bit about this. Sure. Um, the Philobot. Now, before we get into it, I'd like to uh, reiterate, as we mm-hmm. often do, that we are not tied to any of these products that we feature. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one is no exception. It's just an interesting product that we mm-hmm. uh, discovered and we thought we would share. Right. And we also have not gotten, we don't have this product. We're talking about based on what we've seen about it. You know, if people want to send us a product to, to look at this that and talk about we'd be glad to do that as well correct yeah so uh in the past we kind of mentioned dave hackens uh mm-hmm. i'm not sure which episode that is yeah, i think um, that goes back to like episode four i want to say yeah so dave hackens was an interesting gentleman who um, created uh, some blueprints for some machines and gave them away for free so anyone can uh, build it themselves mm-hmm. uh this uh, company philobot is the name of the company they actually took it um, an interesting step forward and they are providing a kit, uh, in this particular case, an extruder kit that you could uh, melt down plastics and extrude your own filament for 3D printing. Now, some of our listeners and, and you as well, mm-hmm. by the way, did your 3D printer ever come in yet? No, it's, no. Uh, it's supposed to ship out this month. So this, Okay. 
So this is what happens when you do a Kickstarter. You know, you just gotta wait <laughs> you for gotta it. Wait. Yeah. yeah. So as you already know, um, uh, a lot of these 3D printing uh, companies use proprietary uh, parts, and mm -hmm. even the filament itself could be a weird dimension. Um, and so it's hard to interchange parts with different things, even something as simple as the, the, the printing media. Right. So uh, what this does is it lets you uh, grind up or, uh, I'm sorry, melt. You have, you'd have to grind it separately, but it lets you melt um, failed pre uh, printing attempts. Uh, sometimes you might have a spill. You mm -hmm. don't have, you have little pieces of, of filament that you can't do anything with, or even raw material if you want to print an ABS or PLA. Mm -hmm and you have some bottles or some other source that you can take and create your own 3D filament, you are no longer tied to the manufacturer of your 3D printer to buy a 3D printing medium. So I thought that was kind of interesting that you could uh, create your own um, raw material at home mm -hmm. or recycle your own uh, raw material from the stuff you've already made and failed or maybe you got bored with it or maybe it broke. Mm -hmm. uh, I know Claudia, you mentioned that before. Wouldn't it be nice to recycle some of the plastic parts in your house? Um, I think this is an interesting product, and uh, as far as price is concerned, they're, they're asking $500 for the Wii kit. It's a put-together kit that you put together yourself. Um, probably a little bit on the high side, but when you look at how much is in it, I, I think it's reasonable. You know, it's mm -hmm. got in, some expensive parts in there. Uh, what did you guys think? Um, well, I mean, I personally, I think it has its merits, right? Because especially with 3D printing, you can go through... 3D printers are so sensitive. If you bump the table, you can completely knock or knock knock it out of sync, and then the whole print you know, hours of printing can go out the window, and you have to start over. And then there's nothing to do with that piece other than to like you know, in this case, grind it up and make more filament of it. Often people just throw them out. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of, I think some people when they buy a 3D printer don't realize that that there's a lot of trial and error with them, mm -hmm. um, and a lot of learning curve to it that where you're gonna have a lot of prints that fail. Um, so I think this is, is great. I, I think there's definitely a place for this, and it's great. Um, it's a little expensive, um, mm -hmm, yeah. but I think it serves its purpose for people that can't make their own. I think Dave Hackens has shown you can make this yourself. Um, so they're, I, don't know, I mean, 500 bucks, you know, you, you, you're already paying, you're paying as much for it to make a filament as you are for the, a 3D printer. Yeah. You know. Now, what? How much is a spool of, of filament? Is it forty dollars, fifty dollars? Yeah, thirty dollars. Yeah, I mean, you, you can you can get it for about thirty dollars, twenty five bucks, something like that. Yeah, twenty. Yeah, yeah. you can find it at twenty. Um, so uh, yeah, and this is people sell people. They'll go on sale as well in different places. So you can find them cheaper. Yeah. So what's interesting is that um, this for the casual three D aficionado, three D mm -hmm. printing aficionado would not be useful but if you're doing a lot of prints and you're making a lot of mistakes and you're going through a hundred pounds of or a hundred dollars worth of a hundred dollars worth of uh filament a day mm -hmm. it, it could pay for itself if you're using that much right and also for the for the maker or for the you know the designer or creator that is conscious about recycling mm -hmm. Because, like, so I, I've been thinking about this. I was like, okay, well, when did, because we did see this. Jose and I actually saw this when we went to the Maker Fair uh, last year in New York. Um, they actually, Philabot was the only um, company there, or, you know, they had a team that was showing their a closed loop recycling mm -hmm. process. There were no other companies there. There was probably two aisles there of 3D printing. Mm -hmm. And as we were going through, like, the, the problem wasn't two aisles. It was like three, there were three or four yeah. aisles. 
And as I was walking around there, I kept on asking Jose, there's two things that are bothering me about this. Number one is the electricity that's being used. Mm -hmm. And number two is the fact that a lot of this is, this material, this plastic material is not being recycled. So as we went through it, we, we stopped by Philabot and we saw how they do end up doing mm -hmm. the the recycling and the shredding of the, of the but I think at that point it was still you had to buy the you had to buy the chips from them you had to buy the the pellets exactly yeah. and then also they had the machine there and it was really expensive because mm -hmm. if you look at the machine it's like you know like in the close to 2000 so the fact that they have a kit for someone who can who can actually you know who would want to know a little bit more about this or like is more conscious about recycling yeah. Really well, really I mean, I'll say from my point of view, like I'm looking to get into the 3D printing to, to the point where this I think would be useful for me because I want to be able to make um, prototypes with it and I feel like I'm going to have things that are going to fail and I, want to, I would want to recycle them and stuff. So I think this would be a helpful thing for me, whether it's this one or I make we make the one that, you know, Dave Hackens has given the information on how to make it one, or, one way or the other. I think this is a useful thing for me. Um, I don't see a lot of people using this outside of the sort of the heavy maker i think maker spaces could definitely use this mm. yes yeah. well it, it's going to require an investment and right. uh it's really only worth it if you're if you're doing this at any volume if you're mm. doing one right. here and one there mm -hmm. uh, i don't think it'd be worth it but uh but and then they have uh, you know in full disclosure they have a whole slew of, of products mm -hmm. uh that that uh go together with this um the the one that we're providing a link for is the do-it-yourself kit. They also have a spooler and a grinder, and mm -hmm. uh, I think they have a, a, another version, which is like $2,000. So uh, it seems to me that they're, they're at several different levels of market uh, interest. And uh, not for everybody, and I agree, you know, for 500 bucks, if, if I'm starting out, I, I think I'd just buy more spools. Mm -hmm. Uh, but if you're if you're spending a hundred dollars of spools a day, hmm, it might be something you'd look into. Exactly. I'm gonna begin by just buying spools, but I think at some point I'm gonna to want to make something like this or buy something like this to be able to recycle failed prints. So I'm yeah. looking at using this 3D printer to sort of make model kits, if you will. Yeah. You know. So I want to be able to model something, print it, and then be able to reproduce it, whether it's by uh, by making uh, casts of it or or whatnot. Um, so it's gonna be the beginning of the process and I, I can see myself going through quite a bit of plastic sometimes so yeah and yeah. of course if before you have that you can just save everything and when you're ready right. you do it all in one shot right mm -hmm. yeah so yeah i think it's, it's a good good product um a little expensive still but you know also it's the first company doing this i think it's only going to go down in price yeah as well. and when you think about it for a starter uh and being the only market and the only person in this market i right. think it's pretty reasonable and I think you're right. I think once two or three other companies climb on board, they're going to make it faster and cheaper. Yeah, I mean, even as they start making it. You know, I think the, the expensive, or, well, I don't know about the grinder, but, you know, with this extruder, the expensive part really becomes the, 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 the head that has to be made at a certain size and it has to heat up. And there's a lot of parts to it that can be expensive. And those can, over time, you figure out ways of doing it cheaper. Yeah. So, yeah. Cool. No, it's, it's a good product. I like it. Um, send us one. <laughs> if you're listening, <laughs> yes, I'd love, love to, to try, try it out. out. Yeah, send, 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 send us one. I'd love to try it out, see if it is a good product. <laughs> All right, let's move to our next day. We still haven't heard about uh, about the, the University of Maryland, Maryland sending us wood. <laughs> yeah, the, the transparent so wood. We're, we're working on that. <laughs> so now there's two things we need sent to us. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, so let's go to uh, what are we working on seeing and reading. <laughs> All right, this is uh, our favorite segment. What are we all working on? Who wants to go first? Why don't you go ahead? Me? Yeah. Um, sure. So I, the, the thing I want to talk to this, uh, this past, or this Friday, and you probably listened to this on Tuesday, whenever you listen to it, this past week here in D.C. was uh, what's called AwesomeCon, which is really just a comic book convention. Um, and a lot of people probably like, oh, wait, what does that have to do with making? But it's, it's at a lot of these comic book conventions, there's a lot of makers, a lot of makers from... Um, like at this particular one, the R2D2 builders were there, for example, uh, which is a group that just makes uh, working R2D2s. They're not, I say working, they're not sentient, but you know, the remote control <laughs> R2D2s that when you look at them, they're exactly like the movie ones. So, and actually, a few of the people that are in those groups got hired to make R2, the new R2D2s for the, the for the, for the new, not BBA, BBA is very complicated. But the, they are to do for the latest movie. Yeah. Um, they had to remake it or whatever, and a couple of the people that are experts on that were hired to do that. You also have a lot of people making um, props and things like that for dressing up. You know, there's a lot of yeah. people dressing up like you know superheroes or yeah, in yeah. costumes. So there's a lot of people making stuff, making armors. Um, you know, there's also a lot of cool stuff there, like the the original Batmobile was there. Oh, yes. that's nice. Yeah. They also mentioned jewelry makers. Yeah, there's a lot of jewelry makers, specific. a lot of t-shirt makers. I think the one thing that's missing at Awesome Con that I know happens at other at other um, at other comic book conventions is there aren't a lot of people that are making um, kits. You know, like I enjoy doing um, model kits or garage kits, as some people also call them, and. You know, in I know in a lot of the other conventions, there's people that make their own and then go and they sell them and they show them off. I think you know some of the stuff that we've gotten at laser cut at your at your at your shop, Ray, yeah. has been from people doing them at conventions, oh. and that's missing here in DC, unfortunately. Um, every year I go, I'm hoping to find something like that, and I can't find that. Um, but but yeah, otherwise a lot of makers, and it's really an enjoyable thing. So if you have a comic book convention near you, I encourage you guys to go if you're interested in making as well. Well, you know, you, you bring it up. It's very interesting. Uh, the people that go to these things are very creative, and, and uh, a lot of the things that they want, you cannot buy. Right, um, exactly. Yeah. I, yeah, I've seen a lot of uh, uh, Comic-Con. I don't ever go to those things, mm-hmm. but I've, uh, being in the middle of the videos, I mm-hmm. see a lot of things being made, and they're making all kinds of props, like you said, swords and like uh, like Zelda shields and mm-hmm. uh, all kinds of swords from different... Uh, Comic books and movies, obviously, they, they like those too. Mm-hmm. So I think that that is a huge maker market. They do it for themselves because right. they can't find what they want. So they just make it. And mm-hmm. some of them make some very impressive um, armor and uh, entire body suits of, of cartoon-like yeah. creations that you can't ever imagine was even mm-hmm. possible. It's pretty impressive what they can do. And they do, they do a lot of that in the garage with very little. Exactly. Yeah. They, and some people make it out of paper, make it out of foam. It's, it's, and it's incredible. They end up looking like real things to the point where they have to have a booth where you, they, you have to, they have to inspect the weapons that you show up with to make sure they're not real. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. They have a weapon check booth so that if you show up with an axe, like a battle axe, they can check that it's a, it's a toy battle axe or it's made just to look like a battle axe. But oh. it, yeah. It's not really sharp. I'm going to kill somebody with it, you know? Oh, that's interesting. That's a, that's a little yeah. scary. 
That actually yeah. is a very it's an interesting mark of of uh, professionalism that they that they have done such a good job that they have to be inspected. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. And uh, it's the kind of place where, uh, and this is some of the stuff that we're working on, where like the shield that we're trying to make, we could take and people would buy there, you know, yeah, and to finish themselves or whatever. So that's why that's it's why it's a shame that that part of it is missing. There's a lot of making going on. Like oh, some of the art there is just amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my favorite piece that I saw, and I'll just mention this very briefly, and we can move on. It was Carmen San Diego. I don't know if you're familiar with Carmen San Diego from the video yes. game. Where in the world, Carmen San Diego? sitting there having like a cup of coffee with where's waldo right waldo from right <laughs> yeah, yeah and and then it opened there's the doors open and waldo's sort of like oh my god and it's boba fett <laughs> looking oh, at both funny. of them yeah so you know like the bounty hunter came to go find both of them <laughs> so it, there's a lot of interesting art but yeah so that's cool so that's what i did this past friday what about you guys how about you ray um well i uh, i finished up another video as, as you know, um, I make a lot of stuff, and yeah. one of the products that I make are customized wheels for mm-hmm. uh, yeah, the so harness racing industry. Yeah, and 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 now I'm tapping into the bicycle market. So I uh, I decided to make a compilation video of some of the designs that I've made over the past five years, and mm-hmm. uh, I put it up on Thursday, and I'm actually surprised I've gotten uh, quite a lot of questions about it. You know, you get used to doing stuff, and you see it all the time, and to you, it's not a big deal anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I do, you do something like this, and you show the world, and, and the world responds. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, and especially with you, because you're manufacturing this thing, so you're making so many of them that it almost like becomes routine for you sometimes, I bet. Yes. Yeah. And, I mean, they're all different, but, but still, they're basically the same construction. Right. And you get to hear the comments mm-hmm. from people. And- oh, yeah, yeah. People say they've, uh, in fact... Uh, I think we covered that in a previous article, a uh, previous episode that uh, they, they uh, wrote an article about what we do, and it turns out that no one else in the world is doing this. Mm-hmm. So that's why I decided to put a video together to show like a, a, a design collage, design collection of all the different yeah. uh, designs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, there's some very cool ones in 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 this uh, video. There's some very cool ones. Oh, cool. I'm trying to think which one was my favorite one. Yeah, huh, I'll think about it. All right, cool. Well, what about you, Claudia? Uh, I've been busy moving. <laughs> yes, I've like... been busy moving. <laughs> but um, yeah, this Saturday I went to a uh, community meeting. It was a it was a health and community expo on um, environmental justice for a specific community here in Southwest DC. And um, some of the things that we're going to be working on is uh, looking at zoning, actually, and uh, looking at different types of um, possibilities for communities that are facing challenges and burdens because of the development that, it, that rapid development that is happening and they're not being involved or part of so that's the good thing about regulation in a way that you know they because of the regulation hopefully they'll have some um something to hang on to to be able to go and say hey wait hold on we can you please let us know what is happening and mm. this is going to impact us and by law you're supposed to be doing this yeah. if it wasn't for that regulation they wouldn't be able to do that so mm. yeah so i'm going to be i'm going to be working on that on wednesday and continuing that work cool very cool good well i mean i think this is a good opportunity to wrap up the show then we are yeah. we are nine episodes in this is it's going well but uh before we close up why don't we tell everybody where they can find out more about us 
at the city colleges uh, on Twitter. Cool. What are, Ray, you, yeah, well, we but, still yeah. we're, st we're still looking for names for the for the for the for the YouTube channel. Yes. But search for yes, Ray so, Pena. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we'll have a link in the notes for that. And then of mm -hmm. course my uh, homemade lathe group. People who might be interested in uh, building their own lathe. A uh, lot of a lot of interesting information there to get you started. Cool. Yeah, and that's on Facebook. Yes. Um, and uh, you can find me on Twitter at City Aperture, and I also have a website by that name, cityaperture.com. Um, now, next week, we're going to talk a little bit about architects that are doing something other than architecture. I think all three of us here went to architecture school, um, and we've all worked doing something different than architecture. I mean, I'm still very much my day job is architecture, but I also have a photography business, race manufacturing a lot right now. Mm -hmm. Claudia does a lot of stuff <laughs> and was well, mostly ecology driven. Um, you are involved in so many things that have to do with planning and go ahead. Yeah. And, but the biggest thing is that we've all also a big chunk of our professional lives have done traditional architectural work. Exactly. As well. So, yeah, yeah. you know, and that's how, that's how, mm. that's what we know. And then from there that, uh, propelled us to do, propelled us to do something else mm. as well. Yeah, and, and we want to hear from other people right now so we can talk about it next week, people that have gone to architecture school or are architects somehow that or are doing or it. practice, that are doing something else. And we thought we can have a, a large discussion next week. Mm -hmm. So if you have done that, email us at madepodcast at gmail.com or send us a message via Facebook or Twitter if you know us mm -hmm. that way. And uh, yeah, I think it'll be a good discussion next week. Yeah. Great. So, well, Good. Thanks, so guys. Thanks again, guys. Uh, this is for Ray, Claudia, and Jose. Thanks everybody for listening. Thank you.